me. Get up here. If, if you stand up here, I'm going to make you get up on stage and share something, too. All right, so um, about 40 of us last weekend were up at, up at a retreat, and I just wanted to take a moment, uh, because God did some really powerful things. We just wanted to take a moment and share a little bit about what he did. So, yeah. Derek, how did, how did God show up in your family this weekend? It was, it was pretty amazing. Um, I kind of came there with no real reservations of what I what was going to expect from it, and kind of just opened up my heart and let God kind of work through so many different men. And it was, um, it was powerful. It was, to me, it was like a divine appointment for myself and so many other individuals. And, um, man, it was just amazing to see. Yeah. It, was, it was so blessed. And it seemed like the more myself and other men were opening their hearts up, that God was just pouring into us and just healing so, so much brokenness and so many men to be able to go back and be fathers to so many. Yeah, so. absolutely. One of the things that Ed, the, the speaker that we had this weekend, focused on is the fact that we are sons of God and daughters of God. Um, and with that, though he has also entrusted to us a huge right and a responsibility to speak life into the lives of those we're close with. And the high point of the weekend, bar none for me, was Sunday morning. As you guys were gathering here, we were there in Palomar, and we just kind of gathered around in a circle and shared stories. Uh, Not shared stories, but called one another out and blessed one another. And the high point for me, I already shared this with you, was when you blessed your son, Hunter, and said, I am proud of you, I love you, and I am with you. And and then also to see Tim Bundy bless his 13-year-old son Cameron and say, today you are a man. And to see the countenance on Cameron's face change and his chest puff up every time his dad called him a man. Awesome. So I'm so glad you guys were there. And thank you for blessing us by letting us share in that very intimate moment. So, And then I'm going wow. to let you. You're leaving? So, uh, Stay here with them. Yeah. Okay, well, Eric called or asked me on Thursday to speak. Two things he said. He said, wear blue jeans and a black shirt. And he told Derek, same thing. But he told me to wear an eye patch. So, uh, I fully misunderstood Eric. I thought, and I brought a whole bunch of stuff to talk about. I, well, I, I, I thought you. he said, come up here for 45 minutes. Eric said for four or five minutes. So, but I had a few ideas. I'm going to cut it short. Um, Eric knows I hate, I do not like getting in front of groups and sharing. And uh, for those who have been taught how to get in front of groups, they tell us to stand in front of everybody and look at the congregation or the audience and picture them with no clothes on. So the good thing for you, especially in the front few rows, is that I only see you guys half naked. So Bad eye patch humor right there. Bad eye patch. Yeah. Okay. That's good. I was going to share a few of the notes that Ed shared, but I want to come back because you know what? Um, The men stood up, the ones that served in the Army and the Navy, the Marines, whatever it was. And it's got to be powerful working with a bunch of men that have your back. For those of us that got to share that weekend with 40 guys... And four teenagers that became men. It was awesome to see them. And what I'm sharing right now, or what's coming up right now, on Sunday morning, we had 44 guys, or how many were left there? Everybody was crying for two years. They were tears. They were. I mean, you guys that were there know it. They were tears of joy. Um, They were not tears of sadness. And to see these men, these boys become men, and for men, I wrote down, if you watch a basketball game or a football game, all you, really need is, all you really need to do is see the last quarter. All you need to do is show up on Sunday morning and see what happened. Wasn't that great? Mm-hmm. Oh. And uh, so I, just, I wrote a terminology I heard when I was running this morning on the, uh, the fish. Out, if we had to label the last, what, two hours, outrageous encouragement. Mm-hmm. I mean, are you going to share more of what happened and not leave it up to me? to do that because uh, I don't know how long oh, do we have I don't know for those that were there remember I, better, that guy I better share you better share okay. <laughs> I just want to say there were 40 men we kind of felt like a band of brothers by the end of the weekend and it's got to feel like you uh, guys that fought in the 
the armed forces that you got these men that are supporting your back. For those that do know me, I can't remember any of those 40 men's names, but I do recognize the faces. There's a story behind that, and uh, so yeah. Anyway, it. it was give the mic back. God, God did some amazing things, and thank you guys for coming thank up you. and sharing, and I appreciate you. And it is just so fun that that God has created us not to do life on our own, but to do it in in relationship with one another. Um, and so I, I know that many of you wives and families probably have seen some of the effects of coming back down the mountain for us. Um, and we are going to be continuing these conversations on our men's breakfast that we have once a month on the third Saturdays of the month over in the Faith Cafe. We, we gather at 6.30 in the morning to pray, and then at 7 we have breakfast. And I just invite any of you guys, please come and join us. The ladies have been doing an amazing job of gathering together, and they are having monthly things. We need this too, because we are not created to do life alone. And then also, if you like to get physical, I'm going to go play trampoline dodgeball at 7 p.m. On, thir- on Tuesday. You're welcome to come and join me there. Right? Kelly? Okay. So, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 5, because we are in the midst of a study through the book of Romans. And the, I just kind of want to remind us of where we've been because this is such a meaty book that rather than being able to kind of cover chapters at a time, we've been having to, t- to bite off small chunks and chew on them. And today's going to be no different. So the first four chapters of the book of Romans have really focused around one central topic, and that is the fact that we, all of us, regardless of whether you're a Jew, a Gentile, regardless of whether you have been ardently following God your entire life, or have wanted nothing to do with him, all of us have fallen short of God's righteous standard, and we are not only separated from him, but we are deserving of his wrath. That's a point that Paul makes over and over and over again. But then he says, but that's not the end of the story. Because if that was it, that wouldn't be very good news. But the good news is that what we could not do for ourselves, Jesus Christ has done for us, going to the cross and dying in our place so that we could be, the term is, justified. We could be made right in the eyes of the law. This idea of justification, uh, it simply means that when we stand before a court of law and all of the, the charges are brought against us, hey, we're guilty of those charges. We have a righteous judge and God. And so we're guilty of those things. And yet, because of what Jesus did in paying the penalty for them, it would be unfair of him to then hold them against us. And so in many ways, we are justified in the eyes of the law. Although we have been guilty, he has paid the penalty. So we get to walk out of that courtroom justified, free. We don't have wrath to look forward to, but rather eternal life in relationship with God. That's the good news. And that's what we looked at over these first four chapters. But this then raises the question, well, now how shall we live in light of that? Sure, we've been justified, but now what? What comes next? And Paul's going to spend the next four chapters processing through that and beginning to show how this then plays out beyond simply the moment of our salvation. And so let's go ahead and in Romans chapter 5 begin reading. And this is a very thick section. I actually intended to preach all the way through all of chapter 5, and then Lee and I started talking on Thursday, and he goes, yeah, this, there's a lot here. And so we decided, let's just go ahead and cover the first 11 verses, which you're going to quickly see is a lot in and of itself. And so I'm going to read through these first 11 verses, and then we're going to go back through verse by verse and see if we can kind of pull the meat out of it. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, Whenever you see therefore, you always want to ask the question, what is the therefore? It is there because in light of what Jesus has done, because he has justified us by the cross, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, or it does not disappoint, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. 
But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Totally clear? Good to go? Let's just pray and go home, right? Crystal clear. It it, it kind of feels in this section like Paul has gone to a theological buffet and he only had one plate. So he just starts piling it all on, right? And he's got this heaping mound of gigantic words and huge theological truths. And you just kind of start going, oh my goodness, like close the fire hose you're spraying me in the face with. And so what we're going to do is we're going to try to slow down. And we're going to take it verse by verse. And we're not going to be able to delve into the depths as much as we would like. But we're going to try to kind of suck some of the marrow out of this. All right. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith. The first thing I want us to notice is our justification in the eyes of the law is not done because we have earned it. It is not done because of our effort. Rather, it's by faith. So Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, it is by grace you've been saved, by faith, not by works, so that nobody can boast and say, look, I have made myself holy. I have made myself right with God. I have earned this standing that I have with him. He's saying, no, we are all deserving of wrath, but because of what Jesus has done, we are saved by grace through our faith, not through our efforts. You don't earn this. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to stop there. Because that word peace, in our English language, we tend to understand peace in the negative sense, meaning it is an absence of something, an absence of conflict, right? So in a time of peace, it means that there's not a war going on. And that's certainly part of the peace that we have between us and God. We are not, he he is not, an enemy. We are not fighting against him. He is rather come near us. And we can have that intimate relationship with him. We are no longer estranged from him. However, the Jew, at least for the Jews who were sitting in that audience, who were hearing Paul say, through Christ we have a peace with God, they would be hearing a completely different thing than our understanding of what peace means. Because to a Jewish ear, peace is shalom. And shalom is actually a positive, not a negative. It is the presence of something, not the absence of something. Shalom is an overall sense of well-being. The best picture I can give you is when my son Grayson is sleeping in my arms, not feeling like he needs to worry about every little noise. He can just rest in his daddy's arms. That is the picture we get of shalom, an overall sense of peace and well-being and rest. And what Paul is suggesting is that because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, because of his justifying work of dying for our sins, we can actually have peace with our God. We don't have to remain estranged from him. We can come before him and rest in his presence and feel at peace. So since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith, into this grace in which we now stand. I want us to focus simply on the last six words of that sentence. The grace in which we now stand. Because I'll tell you, grace is one of those things that we tend to misunderstand. Grace simply means undeserved or unmerited favor. It is a gift that we haven't earned. Our forgiveness in the eyes of the law, our forgiveness and our being justified and being able to be invited back into relationship with God is not something we earned. It was a gift freely given. And we tend to think of that as something that is bestowed upon us at the moment of our conversion. That when we say, Jesus, I need you, I give you my life, that God gives us a gift of grace and we are forgiven. And then after that, we go right back into trying to be good little moralists who try to fix ourselves up and clean ourselves up and be worthy of the gift that we've been given. Prove that we are worthy to be called God's sons and daughters. 
But the point that Paul is making here is it's the grace in which we now stand. It is ongoing. It is permanent. It is now the, the air that we breathe. We live and stand and have, do everything that we do solely by the grace that God has given us. The only reason that we can pray to our God is because of his grace, ongoing. The only reason that we can call ourselves his sons and daughters is because of his grace. It's an ongoing thing. We need his grace every minute, every moment of every day. And so the, the writer of that you know, song that we sing, Amazing Grace, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me is totally true. We have been saved by grace. But in the fourth stanza, he goes on to say, "'Tis grace that's brought me safe thus far, and grace will see me home." We need his grace even now. If you've been walking with Jesus for a few minutes, if you've been walking with him for decades, you are still in that grip of grace, and thank God for it because it's the only way we stand at all. So since we have been justified through faith, we have shalom with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access into faith, uh, by this faith into the grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice. That word boast there can also be translated, we rejoice. In fact, in the very next verse, it will be translated that way in some of your Bible translations. We rejoice or we boast in the hope of God's glory, which we look forward to. We look forward to the day when God will ultimately stand before the world in judgment and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he is God. And on that day, God is going to make some judgments. And our hope is that we will not experience his wrath, but rather will experience his grace. That's the hope we have, that we will be invited into that intimate relationship that Jesus has with his Father. That we too have been invited through because of his sacrifice. That's the hope that we have. We're going to look at this more as we continue to go a little bit, because I know it's not exactly crystal clear yet. So, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also boast or rejoice or glory, as some of yours have, in our suffering. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. We're going to spend quite a bit of time towards the end on that verse itself, so let's keep going. Hope does not put us to shame, or hope does not disappoint us. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Here's the point that Paul is making. He's been talking about the day of God's wrath coming. Remember, this is a letter that was written to be read in one sitting, so we're kind of picking up one little section, but it, it, it's still informed by what's already come before. And he's been talking about the day of God's wrath, the day where every one of us is going to have to give an account of everything that we've done. And we will either be declared not guilty, or we will be declared guilty. And the point Paul made throughout the first four chapters is all of us are guilty. All of us are deserving of God's wrath. And thankfully, because of Jesus Christ's sacrifice, despite the fact that we're guilty, we have hope that we will be declared justified in right standing with the law. And rather than getting his wrath, we will be given eternal life. That's the hope we have. But we might say, well, what if our hope is unfounded? What if we are simply hoping in vain? What if we get there that day and we stand before him and he says, didn't do enough, weren't good enough, nope, sorry, wrath. And we would be shamed. We would be destroyed. We would be rejected. And so Paul speaks to that here in verse 5. He says, our hope does not put us to shame because God has given us something to encourage us and to remind us that we are his. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. When we give our hearts to Jesus, God doesn't simply say, okay, be holy as I am holy, now go. He gives us his Holy Spirit to reside within us, God in us. And the Holy Spirit begins that sanctifying work of stripping away the old self and helping us to follow Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. 
We're going to look deeper into that in the coming weeks. When we get to chapter 8 of Romans, Paul's going to spend a ton of time about the Holy Spirit, and I'm looking forward to getting there. The point I want us to see, however, is in the midst of everything, God has given us a hope, a hope that he has saved us, that our standing with him is secure. And so even in the midst of our trials, even in the midst of our suffering, we can still have peace. But how can we really know, honestly, how can we know that God really loves us? And this isn't just some lofty platitude that Paul's thrown out there. Well, he speaks to that in verse 6. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love to us in this, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He says, you want to know how you can know that God really loves us and he's not just some angry guy up in, up in the sky kind of watching us, waiting for us to screw up so he can blast us? You want to know? Because he did everything he could to save you. He took the punishment that we had deserved upon himself. And Paul uses an analogy from real life. He goes, listen, Every once in a, in a blue moon, somebody is willing to die for a righteous person, meaning somebody that they respect. And every once in a while, people might be willing to die for a good person, meaning somebody that they love. But God, he showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still in open rebellion to him, while we were still saying, I don't want anything to do with you, I am going my way, I'm going to be the captain of my ship, He took the punishment that we had earned upon himself so that we could be brought back into relationship with him. That's how he has shown his love for us. So don't worry that he's angry. You can rest in the fact that he loves us. He's proven it. And then Paul gets into what I feel like is a piece of gristle, man. This thing we can chew on for a a long time. He says in verse 9, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Man, there is so much there, and I I hate to tell you this, but I'm not going to be able to get to the depths of it today. It's going to become more clear what he's saying in the coming weeks as we continue, as he continues his discussion. But there are two words in particular that I want to focus on this morning from that small section. The first one is justification. We've already talked about it a little bit. Justification is a legal term. It means that in the eyes of the law, we are good. That any any consequences that our actions have earned for us have been taken care of. And because of what Jesus has done, we have been justified. We are in right standing with the law. Therefore, it no longer holds our eternity in bondage. But there's a second word that Paul uses here more than justification. He uses the word reconciliation. And reconciliation is very different from justification, but it's in the same direction. Because whereas justification is a legal term, reconciliation is a relational term. Not only have we been forgiven because of Jesus' sacrifice, but now we have been invited back into relationship with our Father in heaven. The relationship that he designed us for from the very beginning. He created Adam and Eve in his image to be his representatives, and his desire was relationship with his creation, with us. But sin severed that. It drove a wedge between us. It sent Adam and Eve into hiding from him. And now that Jesus' blood covers us, that wedge is taken out and we no longer have to remain estranged from him. We can come back into relationship with our Father in heaven. Does that make sense? I know that there's a ton going on here. I know that in a lot of ways we've still only scratched the surface. But I do feel like probably if I were to take this whole section and say, what's the point that you're making, Paul? What do we really need to pull away from it? You can sum the whole thing up in the first two verses of this chapter. 
Let's go back to verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace or shalom with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. A glory that will one day be ours as well. Now, some people might be hearing Paul and and beginning to think to themselves, well, if that's true, if we've been justified, so therefore we have peace with our God, and we reside in this ever-present sense of grace, then that means that my life should be charmed. That means that my body should never break down. If I really have faith, my body will never get sick. My children will always listen to me. My bank account will be overflowing. I will be blessed. I've got to tell you that there, there are some who take this approach to the good news and suggest that faith in God will have a natural byproduct of health and financial wealth. And I don't hear Paul saying that, but that is one approach. On the other hand, there are some who would look at that prosperity gospel and go, or or look at what Paul is saying and go just the opposite way, because they're quite familiar with the fact that when we give our, our lives to Jesus, that doesn't mean that our lives simply get easy. We recognize that, hey, following Jesus is still hard, still get sick. People I care about still die. I still find myself residing under this cloud of depression or despair or anxiety or addiction, and I just can't get out from under it. And toward that, they they might begin to then look at Paul's statements. His gospel message is nothing more than cheap consolation, mere platitudes that really have no bearing in real life. They might just dismiss Paul as somebody who's just, you know, saying stuff to encourage people but really doesn't have a whole lot of bearing on real life. So that's two approaches, two interpretations of what people might take Paul's words to mean to which Paul speaks directly in verse 3. He says, Not only do we glory or rejoice or boast in in God's glory, not only so, but we also rejoice in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character, and character produces hope, and this hope does not disappoint. A couple of things that we notice as we begin to look at that verse 3. First thing is that suffering is a natural part of any Christ follower's walk. It is something that we will experience regardless of how closely we are following Jesus. Yes, Some of our suffering is self-induced. We bring it upon ourselves because we make choices that are not in line with what God wants for us, and there are natural consequences. And yes, some of our suffering is produced because other people in our lives have made those choices. And yes, some of our suffering is produced because we live in a broken and fallen world, and it's a natural byproduct of living in this type of a world. Jesus himself said, in this world you will have trouble. He told this to his disciples the night that he was arrested. The next day he was going to be crucified. He's the son of God. His life was not easy and carefree. Why do we think ours will be any different? We may be following Jesus, but in this world we're going to have trouble. Our bodies are going to break down. People we care about are going to die. We may struggle with anxiety and depression and addiction our entire lives. So in this world, we're going to have trouble, but Jesus didn't stop there, did he? He went on, in this world, you'll have trouble, but I have overcome the world. Because of what he did on the cross, the good news is our depression, our anxiety, the fracturing relationships we find ourselves in, 
the overwhelming debt that we find ourselves saddled with, the addictions that we just can't get out from under, don't get the last word. We have a promise that we find in Revelation chapter 21 that one day there will be a day where there are no more tears, no more sorrow, no more brokenness, and no more death. So regardless of what we encounter in this life, regardless of how dark the valley of the shadow of death that we find ourselves walking through, it's not going to get the last word. And that's great news. But that's not the only thing that we find. The second thing that we notice from Paul's statement that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character produces hope, is that regardless of why we are suffering, whether it's something that is self-induced, something that has been brought upon us because of other choices, or simply is a byproduct of living in a broken world, God, our God, is powerful enough to redeem and use even that to bring about his purposes. One of my very, very favorite verses, you don't need to turn here, one of my very favorite verses that I find myself going back again and again to is found in Hebrews chapter 12. It starts in verse 7. It says, Endure hardship as discipline. Endure hardship as if it's discipline from our Lord, our Father. He goes on in verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Duh. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. I'll read that again. No, endure hardship as discipline. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. You might find yourself in the midst of a struggle right now, something that has been absolutely wrecking you, and it has been causing you to question whether God is even there. It's been causing you to get so overwhelmed with life, and you just go, God, what is going on? Why are you allowing this to happen? Don't you care about me? The writer of Hebrews simply reminds us that even in the midst of our suffering, regardless of why we're suffering, and absolutely sometimes we bring it on ourselves, but our God has the ability to use that, kind of like a weightlifter uses a barbell to strengthen our muscles. But we have a choice in this. Because the key word is, it will produce a harvest of, a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who are trained by it. Because the reality is, a lot of times when we encounter suffering in our life, our first impulse is to throw up our hands and go, no fair, and we start blaming God, and we start blaming anybody and everybody else around us. And we go, oh, woe is me, this is no fair, and we get absolutely nothing from that. We learn nothing because our hearts become defensive and hardened to our circumstances. We become angry and resentful and self-centered. On the flip side, if our hope is in him and we trust him, then even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we cling tightly to the the robe of our shepherd and we trust his lead. And we go, God, give me wisdom. And we lean into it rather than hiding from it and going fetal and just going, make it stop, make it stop. Instead, we lean into it, and it will produce a harvest of righteousness and peace in our lives if we will allow ourselves to be trained up by it. Does that make sense? I mean, I've seen this in my life at countless times where I have a choice in the midst of a moment. My wife and I are kind of at odds, and I have a choice. Either I can stay mad at her, and I can keep walking away, or I can swallow my pride. I can lean into the conflict and I can look into myself and say, what do I need to own here? Because at the end of the day, I can't control her choices. I can't control her actions. All I can do is control my own. So how am I going to proceed here? And when I have been willing and able by the Holy Spirit's work in me, because you better believe my flesh does not want to submit my right to be right. But when I am willing 
to lean into that and work through it, my goodness, the fruit it produces in my relationship with my wife or with my children or with the in-laws or with my boss or with anybody else in my life. When there is conflict, we can either run from it or we can lean into it. Probably the best picture I can give you, I saw this week when I was introducing my son Ethan to the Karate Kid for the very first time. The original, not the remake. Um, my goodness, it, the 80s movies were amazing. I'm just going to throw that out there. So I'm going to paint a picture for you. you got this kid, Daniel. Father's out of the picture. Mom has moved him to California to get a job. He doesn't like being there. She's working now, so he's pretty much on his own. Starts school and instantly starts getting picked on by a group of bullies who all know karate and love to use it on him. And Daniel is feeling pretty sick and sorry for himself. He's pretty angry that his mom's brought him out here, and he begins to try to fight back. He's a great kid, but he's kind of in a bad situation, and the kids are ruthless. And he gets himself beat up several times. And in the midst of that, there's a guy named Mr. Miyagi who works at the, at the, the place where he lives as a maintenance man. And Mr. Miyagi protects Daniel at one point, and all of a sudden Daniel realizes, you know karate? And so he starts hanging out with Mr. Miyagi, and Mr. Miyagi kind of takes him under his wing a little bit. And towards the middle of this movie, Daniel asks Mr. Miyagi, would you train me in karate? And Mr. Miyagi says, okay, show up at my house bright and early. So Daniel does. He shows up at Mr. Miyagi's house, and Mr. Miyagi hands him a pail of water and a sponge. And he points to a row of cars and he says, wash the cars. And when you're finished, wax on, wax off. So Daniel washes and waxes some cars. Takes him all day. And he goes home. The next day he shows up bright and early. Mr. Miyagi hands him two paddles. And he points to a long wooden walkway and he says, sand the floor, daniel son." And he spends an entire day sanding that floor. No clue. Why he's asking him to do it, he just does it. He goes home later that night. It's dark out. His body's aching. Mr. Miyagi says, come back tomorrow, early. So Daniel shows up early the next day. He points to a long fence, and he hands him a paintbrush, and he says, paint the fence. Up, down, up, down. Daniel spends the entire, like half the day, finishes early, right? And then Mr. Miyagi says, you paint the fence? Yes, I did. Both sides? Spends the rest of that day painting the fence. Goes home that day, aching and sore. Shows up the next day. I'm sorry, but if I'm Daniel, I'm out, right? Three straight days of manual labor, done. Shows up the fourth day. There's a note on the door. Mr. Miyagi is gone. Paint my house. All the paint, a ladder, and some brushes. And he does it. But throughout that day, his body starts aching. He starts getting frustrated. He starts thinking to himself, I asked him to be my sensei, and he is using me as slave labor. He starts getting frustrated. More than that, he starts getting outraged at this. And so when Mr. Miyagi shows up later that night with some fish on a string, this guy's gone fishing, and I've been painting his house, he lets loose on this guy. I'm done! And he doesn't use those words. He's a little bit less um, respectful. I am done! I asked you to be my sensei, and you are using me. Well, no more. I'm out. And he turns, and he begins to walk away from this man that he thought was going to train him. And it's at this moment that we're going to pick up the the story. Don't you love how what he has been suffering through for four days gets completely reframed in a matter of a couple of minutes? In the same way, that, God, that Mr. Miyagi was using what seemed like mundane tasks to train him up. God often uses the suffering in our own life to radically alter us, to alter our perception on the world, to alter our perception of what he is doing and our dependency upon him. Because our natural impulse when we start suffering is, Why, God? Don't you care about me? Don't you notice what I'm going through? And the reality is, yeah, he does. 
But our God in heaven cares a whole lot more about our character than he does our comfort. So oftentimes he will allow us to endure hardship as a way of training us up. And we talk a lot in our society. One of the, one of the uh, platitudes that we throw out as encouragement to one another, even within the church, is that God will never let you endure anything more than you can handle. He'll never give you more than you can handle, right? Have you heard that? It's not in the Bible. Now, there is a verse in the Bible similar. It says that God will never allow you to be, tempt, or to be tempted more than you can handle, but he'll always provide a way out. But that has to do with temptation, not with suffering. I've got to tell you, I have seen that God allows us to, to endure more than we can handle all the time. I'm sure that there are some of you in here right now who could give us an example of a way he's allowing you to, to handle more than you can handle right now. He will never, however, give us more than he can handle. And that is the reminder that our hope is not in our own strength. Our hope is in him. Our hope is not in our ability to just muscle through it. Our hope is found in our Lord and our Savior, in a God who says, I will not leave you, I will not abandon you, I am your shepherd, you will not be in want, and I will lead you through the valley of the shadow of death, and you will have to fear no evil, for I am with you. And so I think of Mr. Robert Bell, I think of Carrie, both of whom right now are undergoing cancer treatment. And it would be easy for them to go, God, why? Why have you let this happen? Oh, woe is me. And I know they're not the only ones. I know that there are others of you who have either gone through it or are going through it or will go through it. Just as an example. The reminder is that you, we, are not promised painless lives and that if we are willing to allow God to do so he will train us up even in the midst of that I should also mention something else that we learn through this and that is that I lost my train of thought ah yes We are not called to rejoice that we are suffering. I'm going to say that again. Paul is not suggesting that we say, I'm so thankful I've got cancer. Hooray! Rather, we are called to rejoice in the midst of our suffering. Right? Because when we get our eyes fixated on what we're going through and on the pain of our shoulder because we've been painting all day long, when we get ourselves fixated on what we're walking through right now because it just doesn't seem to have an end and we don't see the point, we're going to get despondent very quickly. We are going to lose hope very quickly. And we're going to give up very quickly. But when we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that God had set before him, the hope that he had, He endured the cross, paid no attention to the shame of it. And God glorified him, raised him up to be with him in heaven. And that is the hope that we have. Not in our own ability to get through this. But the hope we have is that because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, that even our cancer won't get the last word. Now that's not to suggest that it won't be painful. That's not to suggest that there won't be hard days. That's not even to suggest that the cancer will go into remission. We are not promised tomorrow. However, our hope is in the fact that even cancer, even death, does not get the last word. And that is good news. And so I want to close with another letter that Paul wrote in in 2 Corinthians You don't have to turn there. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, right at the very end in verse 16, Paul says this. He says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Although outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Although our bodies are failing us, 
our souls are being buoyed up by the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. For our light and momentary troubles, I love that he calls them light and momentary because I know that they don't always seem so light and momentary. They seem interminable. They seem terribly heavy. But in light of eternity, light and momentary. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, not on the obstacle in front of us, not on the the pain of the moment, but but upon what is unseen, upon our Father in heaven, and Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, since what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. I know that, that there are a lot of us in here this morning who are tired. And the temptation, when we lean into our own strength, And we lean into a theological belief that if we simply have more faith, God will make the pain go away. And the pain doesn't go away. And then we begin to doubt our faith. We begin to doubt our worthiness. We begin to doubt God's love. Or even question if he's there at all. And the reminder this morning is that even in the midst of our suffering, God has not left us. He has not abandoned us. He's right there with us. And if we are willing, he will use even this to train us into tools that are powerful weapons in the hand of our sensei, our Lord, our Savior. But a tool that is useful needs to go through the sharpening process. And oftentimes when that tool is being sharpened against a wedding stone, it creates sparks. So don't get discouraged because you see sparks in your life. Don't get discouraged because you are experiencing pain right now. That doesn't mean he's turned his back on you. That doesn't mean he doesn't see it. It doesn't mean he doesn't love you. If anything, it says just the opposite. That he is using this to train you, if you're willing. So this morning as a family, I just want to invite some of you those of you who are currently walking through something. You've been suffering maybe physically, maybe it's emotionally, maybe it's spiritually, or relationally. But you are suffering and you simply need the strength to persevere through today. Would you stand up? So we want to pray with you. So if you're walking through something right now, just go ahead and stand up. Thank you for your courage. Those of us who are seated, these are our brothers and our sisters. And we are called to rejoice with those who rejoice, grieve with those who grieve, and come alongside and support those who are hurting. So right now I want to invite you to stand up and surround our brothers and sisters and in an appropriate manner extend a hand toward them. And if there's not somebody near you and there's already a crowd, you can just extend a hand. But here's what we're going to do right now. We are all going to pray out loud at the same time. Coolest thing about God is he can actually make sense of all of that. So we're going to pray for a couple of minutes out loud at the same time for these individuals. You don't need to know what's going on. God already does. So just pray for the Holy Spirit's peace, shalom in the midst of this. Pray for God's will to be done. And then in a moment, I'll go ahead and close this up. Let's pray.
God, I thank you so much for loving us. And I thank you that you sent Jesus Christ to take upon himself the penalties that we've earned for ourselves so that we don't have to remain estranged from you any longer. And I thank you, God, that our hope is in you, not in our strength, not in a doctor, not in uh, some attorney to try to help us get out from under legal problems. God, I thank you that our hope is in you. And I thank you that although we may be encountering things that are bigger than our ability to overcome them, you are bigger than them. Greater is you that is in us than is in the world. And there is nothing, nothing arrayed against us that you cannot and will not conquer. But we also recognize that we're not promised easy, carefree lives. And so, Father, I ask for your hand of blessing and protection upon my brothers and my sisters and upon myself. Father, would you give us the strength to get through this moment that we find ourselves in? Would you remind us that we are not alone, that not only do we have others who are journeying with us, but we have a Father in heaven who loves us more than we could ever possibly fathom. And that because of the cross, regardless of what we're facing, it will not get the last word. And Father, I do ask that you would use this to train my brothers and my sisters up, to strengthen feeble arms and weak knees and give them the strength to not only follow you with perseverance and hope, but to be a light in the darkness to our neighbors who, who look at our lives and the carnage around us and just go, how are you still smiling? How on earth do you have any hope at all? God, may you use this, even this as a testimony to your faithfulness and the fact that you are God and we are not. So we give you our lives, Jesus, and say your will be done. In your holy name, amen. Guys, have a great week.